Hello, and welcome to They'll Be Fine. I'm your host, Katherine Caldwell. It's 2024, and we are pumped for all the exciting and fascinating people that we're going to get to talk to this year. But first, we want to reflect on the past year, 2023, our first full year of the podcast. We had the privilege of interviewing so many brilliant human beings this year, and we want to look back on a few of our favorites. We've had the opportunity to learn from authors, entrepreneurs, professors, speech language pathologists, psychologists, and just so many educational professionals who have opened our minds to captivating ideas in the world of gifted education. Today's episode includes snippets from our conversations. Join us as we look back on some highlights of our first full year of They'll Be Fine. The first episode that we're going to look back on is our interview with Lisa Van Gemmert, or also known as the Gifted Guru. Lisa is an expert consultant. She's a writer, a former teacher, school administrator, a youth and education ambassador for Mensa. She's done so much and she is such a wealth of knowledge. Um, I remember listening to her speak at the NCAGT conference last year. And I just remember sitting there with this notebook and I just filled it with so much, so many resources, knowledge, tips, ideas, and just things that made me laugh. Honestly, she is very entertaining, but so intelligent and has just had so many different experiences that I feel like have um, shaped who she is and and just shares it all. She is so willing to share everything that she has and um, just absolutely adore talking to her. This first clip that we picked is where Lexi asks Lisa, if someone asks you, like, like she talks about at the doctor's office, but if somebody asks you, what is your job? Explain, you know, your life's work or explain like what you do. Um, how would you explain that to them? And we ask this in every single one of our episodes when we're interviewing someone new. And I think now as someone who is in the gifted realm of education as an AIG teacher, I feel like I understand what they're talking about like much more clearly, but even just a few years ago when I was in a regular classroom, I feel like I had misconceptions and already had preconceived notions about what I thought gifted education was or what I thought those people did all day. Like, you know, like we we have these ideas of what we think if we're not in that space. And I really like the way that she explains um, her work and what she's doing and why she's there. When you attempt to explain your life's work to someone that maybe isn't living and breathing in this world of gifted education, what do you tell them or how do you explain to them what it means to be labeled as gifted? I obviously have an elevator speech that's really short. I just had to use it today at the doctor's office when they asked me what I did. And I said, I'm, I work in education. I sometimes will say I'm a teacher's assistant um, because it, that everybody knows what that means. But I will say that I help teachers teach kids who are so smart that they have a hard time just being in a regular classroom and their teacher needs some special skills to make sure that they can learn the end. That's what I say. Now, if they ask me more questions, 
I will get into it more deeply and I will add things like, you know how a lot of students struggle because they have learning difficulties. Having an ability far above what other kids your age have is its own kind of difficulty. And so if you, and depending on the level of education of the person I'm talking to, if they understand the idea that there's like an IQ spectrum, I'll say, I focus on kids who struggle because they're too far the other way, right? Like they, we have federal law that protects kids who have learning differences or whose IQ is really far to the left. I focus on making sure we don't leave the kids whose IQ is super far to the right in the, in the dust. Most people are very surprised to find out that there is no protection under the law for gifted students. Most people are very surprised about that. If there is, it's at the state level. Mm -hmm. And even then, I find that even the states that do technically require identification and service of gifted children and require that teachers be trained, I still find that every, like, when I go to those states, there are always districts that can go under the radar. That's no guarantee. There's no, I have yet to see, I'm sure this has happened. If someone knows of this and can let me know the details of it, I would love it. But I've yet to see an OCR complaint because of a lack of service of gifted. OCR is the Office of Civil Rights, and you can file a complaint if you feel a health provider or government agency has discriminated against you or someone else unlawfully. But you see it every single day because of Mm -hmm. students from the special education sphere that's not gifted. I think it just goes to what we talk about, like this huge issue of just people not think they're thinking that these kids will be fine. They're thinking that they don't need the same services or aren't entitled to the same services that a student would need who, like you said, is in the, on the left side of the spectrum. I think that's such a, a good visual to think about and to explain to someone that these students over here need what They have a need, just like these kids over here have a need as well. It's just different. I describe it like if school is a tortilla (laughs) and you fold it up in the middle and make like a taco, right? School's made for all the stuff in the middle, the meat, the cheese, like all that's there. And the kids who are up at the top rim of the tortilla of the taco, they're, they're just out there. They're just there. It's not there for them. And whatever side they're on, they need assistance. But you know, the the basic, the basic reason that people do not believe in the identification and service of the gifted and the need for it is because of a fundamental lack of understanding of what school success entails. Most people, even people in gifted ed sometimes, believe that what it takes to succeed in school is high intelligence. Isn't that what school's about? Learning? What's learning about? being smart. Well, but that's not true. Like what it takes for student success in school is a small a bit, a small bit of ability, but it also takes executive function skills and it also takes social emotional strength and skills and development. And get to kids don't necessarily have high executive function. In fact, people are probably laughing just to hear me say that sentence, don't necessarily have high executive function. I think most people who deal with gifted kids a lot would say due to asynchronous development, they're often going to have executive function struggles. And then they're definitely not necessarily going to have social emotional strength above their grade level, right? And so I think we have a misperception about what it takes to succeed in school. And that misperception is the heart and soul of why we don't believe in serving gifted kids. It's our own ignorance. 
The next clip from Lisa's episode is about where she discusses what to say or advice for parents and teachers when a child comes home and says, I'm bored at school. And if you go back and listen to Lisa's full episode, she really dives into what boredom is and I never knew that there could be so much to go along with the word boredom. Um, I never knew that there was so much misunderstanding with it. Um, but the clip we chose is where she gives advice. And I think this is very helpful for, um, parents and teachers, especially for a phrase that can sometimes get a strong reaction out of us. Um, listen to this clip. I feel like so many educators, including myself, have heard from a parent, like my kid is bored in class. So Mm -hmm. what advice would you give one to parents when their kid says that to them? And then what advice would you give to teachers to help the the parent understand? Okay. First of all, I'll, I'll start with parents. If your child says to you, I'm bored. First of all, you want to narrow it way down. No classroom is doing, no classroom on the planet practically. Well, let me narrow it down. Very few classrooms in the United States where I have taught and teach, very few classrooms do the same thing all class period every day. That's just not a thing. We don't do the same thing all day. So if a student says, I'm bored in Miss Amenis's class, then we got to narrow that down. So the parent needs to ask some questions. What kinds of activities are you doing what things is a teacher doing when you're feeling this boredom? Are you feeling bored during direct instruction? Are you feeling bored doing during group work? Are you feeling bored boredom when you do this? And we also have to ask, what does boredom mean to you? What do you mean you feel bored? Because we assume that we understand what boredom is, but a child may have a much narrower box of feeling crayons. Do you know what I mean? Like you have that original box of eight crayons and that's what kids have emotionally. They have Bored, happy, sad, mad, whatever. They got a few more, right? Adults, we have a big, the 96 box with a sharpener. We know lots of words for feelings. And so we want to make sure that we're asking enough questions to get it. The child may be feeling frustrated, but they're calling it boredom. They may be feeling insecure and they're calling it boredom. They may be feeling that they've been doing the same thing too long. They did want a faster pace and they're calling it boredom. It isn't necessarily like what I think of as boredom is when boredom is when there is this mismatch between what I'm capable of doing and what I am being asked to do in a way that I had no choice over, right? You have to add that piece because if Mm -hmm. I choose to wash the dishes, if I choose to fold the laundry, I'm going to feel far less bored than if I have no choice. Now, at the same time, there are people who have jobs that are very repetitive. My grandmother worked in a GE factory where she made televisions very repetitive, like on a factory line. And she loved it, even though she was capable more eventually start her own business owning a hair salon. But she says that when she was working on the line in the GE factory, that she could think she had freedom to think because it didn't take her mental power, right? And she could chat with other coworkers and stuff. And the repetition itself was advantageous to her. Other people would find that it would drive them crazy. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with ability. So you want as a parent, you have to ask more questions. 
You have to ask more questions. What's going on? Because if a parent will be much more successful in going to a teacher and saying, blah, 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 blah. Start with a few nice things. I saw this thing that so-and-so came home with and it was so cute. That was a fun assignment. I'm so glad that I got to see it. Okay. Then say, my child has said that she's feeling bored. And when I ask more questions about that, because I know your class isn't boring. When I asked more questions about it, what I found was that she feels like a lot of students, that you are definitely meeting the needs of students who need the directions repeated a couple of times in order to really get it. But she feels ready to work after the first time, or maybe even capable of reading the directions herself and getting started. And I'm wondering if there's a way that one that you could give her like a hand signal or something once and then let her go. Is that, do you see any way that we can make something like that work? Right. So we want to ask enough questions, get specific enough that we can have a specific request of the teacher. Bringing uh, the statement, my kid is bored in your class to the teacher is not a great way. It's not an opening line in a good conversation. It's a volley in a war. So you don't want to do that. You want to ask you want to ask your student enough questions to be able to ask the teacher a specific intervention. My and the other thing I would say is your you have to be honest about is your child is your child using boredom as a way to get out of personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. And so we had to ask some questions like what are you doing, right? Like what are you doing? Because it's always interesting to me. It's rarely the top students in the class who complain of boredom. And it's often the students who are struggling, but don't want to admit they're struggling. It's a way to divert attention away from that. I had a few takeaways after listening to her response to that question. Um, One was to humble ourselves. As a teacher, I have heard this phrase a few times and I remember I don't remember the situations, but I remember the way it made me feel. And I remember sitting there hearing that and instantly a wall going up between me and the parents, feeling defensive, feeling, oh, I'm not good enough, or oh, I am not being entertaining enough for your child. It just instantly became a defense. And I like how she points out Let's let's talk about using the correct vocabulary. Let's actually get down to what exactly is the child talking about? What exactly is making you feel that way? When is this happening? What are we doing? Um, could we try to use a different word besides bored? Could we maybe narrow it down to something else? And I just really think that that can help everyone solve the problem. Because of course, no teachers are wanting their children sitting there bored, you know, not interested in what we're doing. Um, but there's just so many layers that go into school and what we have to learn and things we have to get done. And sometimes there are things that we are not really interested in. I've had those, that conversation with my kids this past week. Um, so I just really appreciate how she explained the need for communication between the school and the parents. Um, and just reminding ourselves that we have a common goal and, we want what's best for the child and we want to get down to the actual issue and not let egos or um, feelings, our personal feelings getting in the way of any of that. I really like the way she explained that. We're going to push the pause button for just a second to share some really exciting news. 
NCAGT's annual conference is heading to Greensboro, North Carolina on March 14th and 15th, 2024. This is an event you won't want to miss. For the latest updates on registration, keynotes, and all the things conference-related, head over to ncagt.org. And here's the best part. If you have a burning question or need more information, we've got you covered. Just shoot us an email at conference at ncagt.org. All right, let's get back to it. The next episode that we're going to look back on is our interview with Stephanie Higgs. Stephanie is a passionate, energetic, and engaging gifted educator and differentiation coach. She divides her time between daily gifted instruction and coaching teachers to enrich and extend learning to meet the needs of their diverse learners. As soon as we started talking to Stephanie, you can just see, hear, feel her excitement um, about education, about helping teachers, supporting students and educators. She has this infectious energy about her that makes you excited about whatever she is talking about. Right before this clip, she explains that she had the opportunity to teach at a school that partnered with museums in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And she talked about how the school, the way the curriculum was planned out, they got to go to a museum sometimes once a week um, to continue and further their learning. It was very targeted. It wasn't the type of field trip where we go for a whole day and um, they went for specific exhibits. They went for maybe an hour and then they could get back to school and continue on with their day. It was a really cool experience that she got to have. Um, So in this clip, she then discusses how gifted children learn whole to part instead of the more common opposite way of thinking part to whole. Something that's specifically great there for gifted learners is that our gifted learners really learn better from whole to part. So a lot of our typically developing general education students, they learn best from part all the way up to whole. So each day you teach them that bite-sized lesson, at the end of the unit, they say, okay, now I get it. Now I understand how all of those pieces fit together. Well, a lot of times our gifted education students, they think in an opposite way. They need to see at the beginning this overarching theme and then understand how all of those pieces fit underneath that big overarching concept or that big idea. So I think it's interesting that you mentioned how gifted kids think where they need to see the whole first before they see the parts. I instantly thought of a couple of my kids that I have this year who I definitely can see that because they ask so many questions and questions that I think other kids wouldn't even think of yet because they're trying to like paint a picture probably in their brain of what I'm talking about. That was a beautiful way to explain that because I can see that with some of my kids. And that's so helpful to know as teachers When you're thinking like, why are they asking this question right now? They don't need to know that right now. They do. They do need to know that right now so that they can understand what you're talking about. I think that's really, it's a good thing for teachers to know. Two quick ideas there. First would be to think about when you think, Catherine, about your third grade, what would be a universal theme is what we're talking about here. But what would be a universal theme that would encapsulate every unit that you teach in every study? And so that's really the idea of a universal theme. It is truly universal. So for us, what we do in pre-K through eighth grade, we assign a universal theme to each grade level. And so that way, students really are getting to make meaning. So that way, when they have those questions with you, what they can be sitting there trying to think is, how does that fit into this overarching concept? Mm -hmm. So like for us in third grade, it's structures. That 
pairs really well with the studies that we're completing in ELA, that you can really think about the structures mm-hmm. in math. Of course, science and social studies lend themselves well to that. The animal kingdom, the stru- structure of the animal kingdom, we do oceans and we do space in third grade where I'm teaching now. And so there's so much you can do with structure there, but that's a great way to, you know, to kind of assign that universal concept or that universal theme. And then the whole year students are kind of puzzle piecing how do all of these things fit into this universal theme. A second idea that I do there with that, they always have questions and they always have more questions is I carve out a small pocket of time each week and I call it, what are you wondering Wednesday? So I read a book years ago called the curious classroom and I tweaked it and made it my own with this. What are you wondering Wednesday? But what I let those students do that need that if it's not I know sometimes they're ready to do that deep dive like I was talking about with my brother and you're like love that got to teach all of this and we have five minutes to lunch so that's gonna yes. need to wait so what you could do is think about like a curiosity journal And so I have some students that prefer to do that virtually, like on their Chromebook, and they just keep a running doc. I have other students that use like just a little pencil paper journal because it's so much quicker than just whip that out. But they put as many burning questions as they have there. And then I dedicate a few minutes of time each week, wherever that fits into your week as a whole. And that's when I love alliteration. So it's what are you wondering Wednesday, but we could fact finding Friday. I mean, we could put it anywhere, but there's three parts to that process. And students are always at different spots. So some students are just generating questions like during that few minutes that I carve out, they're just making a list of what are you wondering? So we call those like our I wonders. And then if they're, they don't have a burning question, but they've got this big, long list of them. Great. You get to actually embark on the process of researching answers to your burning questions or three, they're working on presenting that information. So if they want to put that in Google slides, whatever they want to do today here, I looked into this and this is where that wound up. So that's a way to, to help acknowledge and provide the value to the way that their brain is wired, the way that they have these questions, the way that they want to deep dive into a topic that you introduce. It's protecting time for that, but that's also helping you juggle. We've got five minutes till luncheon and that's such a good question, but we could go off on a 20 minute tangent. So that's one little strategy I use. There's a reason why Stephanie's episode was called Bite Size Bits because her episode is full of tips just like these. The idea of a curiosity journal um, or wondering, what are you wondering Wednesdays or just giving these students an outlet for their wonderings and their curiosity and not putting it out, but also allowing you as the teacher to still teach your content or still move on with your day because it's a fast paced day. You got a lot of stuff to do throughout, you know, in those hours at school and you don't always have time to sit there and answer the question, or maybe you don't even know the answer to the question. I don't know how many times my students have brought up these wonderings or, you know, I'm wondering about this. And I'm like, that's a great wonder. Let's give it a Google. Like, and sometimes you have time and sometimes you just don't. So the idea of keeping a journal or a document and they could even share it with you. And then when you have time, you could sit down and write some ideas underneath their questions or giving them time to research and then create a project about it and share it with everybody. I think that is taking something that is sometimes a pain for educators and turning it into a win. And who knows where that could take that child? Who knows what that could spark, what interest that could spark and become a hobby for them? Who knows? So I love the idea of taking something that can sometimes be a hurdle in our lives and finding a way to let that become a strength for that child. And who knows where it will take them.
In this next clip, Stephanie explains another one of her helpful teacher tips. Get your tissues ready because it is such a precious, simple, well thought out strategy that is manageable and has so much, gets you so much bang for your buck in the classroom. Listen to this. So true. So throughout your experiences, you have helped to implement many different unique traditions in the classroom, grade level and school-wide, such as bobblehead, biography, coffee house, sunshine, phone calls, Greek mythology, readers, theater, plays, and sharing strengths sessions. Which of those would you say is like your favorite one? Sunshine phone calls are, I think, the best thing I've ever invented. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Please explain that. So these are so super quick. Typically, when I would hang up the phone, it would say like a minute, 33 seconds. So I'm talking such little time, the most profound investment that I made with my students. And so I was always on the hunt for a student who was just doing something special. It could be something really small. It could be a student who's just consistently just right there, just right on track with you, always making great choices, maybe not not acknowledged and celebrated enough for being such a trustworthy student, maybe great leadership, maybe just really kind and thoughtful. Somebody spilled their whole box of crayons and you're the first one to jump down there and help them pick those up. Maybe it was a student who stood out because that is a little more atypical of, hey, we've been working on perspective taking or acknowledging others' viewpoints and really noticed you do that. So typically what I tried to do was all week long, I would just keep my eyes peeled for that. And then on Fridays, my class wrote a script at the beginning of the year and we wrote it together. It was very short and sweet. And we would call the parents on speakerphone as a class and, and it was like scripted. So I, I would always start it and I would say, hello, this is Miss Higgs. And I would say, my class is here actually with me on speakerphone and they have a special message. Are you ready for it? And the parent would say, yes. I point at the class and they would say, this is a sunshine phone call from Miss Higgs class. And they honestly didn't know until this next moment who it was going to be for. And so sometimes they could recognize their parents' voice, but a lot of times they couldn't on the phone. And so then I would say, Catherine was a point at my class. And they would say, wonderful. And then I would say, let me tell you why I've called to brag about Catherine. She is consistently making great choices. Mom and dad, I just, I could call you every single day. This is a student who's just, I go on. And just for 30 or so seconds, just not long at all, but just bragging about this student. And then I'd say, okay, we have one more message for you. Are you ready? And I'd point at the class and they would say, we always did them on Friday. So they would say, we hope you have a wonderful weekend or we hope this brightens your day, whatever they came up with. And that's why we called them sunshine phone calls. And so just doing one of those weekly, that is still the aspect of my classroom that I hear about more than anything else that I've ever done. I think making those positive phone calls home, like we've talked about already, teachers are just spread so thin and their plates are overflowing and finding, we all value the importance of that. We all value those connections, but where does that fit? Even if you have the best of intentions today during planning, I'm going to make one positive phone call. Then of course, inevitably nine things came up and that didn't happen. And so carving out time in the school day to do that and letting the kids have ownership and letting the kids be part of that. I would have kids come up and nominate somebody. Hey, Mrs. Siggs, I'm not sure if you saw it or this happened at lunch. And I wanted to be sure that you knew about that and things like that. And so it was just truly so profound. I think that finding time to celebrate students in that way was so special. Sometimes if something surprising happened. Oh, I just found out in the middle of the day that you won the writing contest that all of my students entered. So that would be a, let's stop everything right now. This just warrants one immediately. And so again, such a tiny little piece of an entire week, but just, it paid off tenfold for the students, for their families and parents cried. Like it was just a really, listen, I just had a tear in my eye. I was like, (laughs) this is so 
precious. And I was like, this is just has so many good asks. There's so many things you can get from that. Like one that's helping your classroom culture. Like Mm -hmm. I just feel like that brings us all together because we just witnessed your parents hearing this amazing thing about you. Like that to me is so powerful. And you're doing it as a class. Like, yes, you're not having to go into use planning time or like, I feel like phone calls are just something like I don't do in front of my kids. Like it's usually right. like a private right. thing. Sure. So I just love that. Like the kids get to be a part of it. And that one kid who's getting to sit there and listen to it and know that their parents are hearing this. Oh my gosh. I bet they're just, their day week is made. Yeah. Like it, that is just so powerful. Yeah. It's really special. And I just think, yeah, there's just not enough time. So I think the longer that we've all been into teaching, the more we see there is less and less time for these extra pieces that we know matter, but we are just really plugging away at that content. And so we can always find, and like I said, a truly start to finish this phone call took less than two minutes. And the impact that it made was more priceless than anything else that I did. We can certainly find those two minutes once a week. A couple of pro tips, if that's something anyone was interested in doing. I did secretly email the parents the day before and just said, mm. expect this phone call at this time. Because of course, yes. the first thing when parents see the school is calling, they're like, oh gosh, who's in the nurse's office or who's So I said that. And And kids are listening to you. Exactly. Exactly. And tell them you're going to be on speakerphone. So it's not the time to be like, oh, hey, I've been meaning to call you and go into that. And so all I would say was you're getting a surprise phone call tomorrow. Please don't mention it. It'll be during this window of time. Also, if you can't answer, no worries. We can leave a sunshine voicemail, which actually kids loved because then they could go home and listen to it themselves. And I got such a kick out of that. But that was just another, just to make sure parents were available if they could be, they usually really tried to. And then also sometimes it's really a great idea to start off if you have that student that comes to you and they perhaps have a bit of a reputation for some challenges that may present themselves. Finding a way to start out with a positive can be life-changing for the kid, the year that they have in the relationship with those parents. If these are parents who have frequently said, oh gosh, when I get a call from the school, it's something negative, something's happened. And that's just a really challenging relationship. If you can let that be your first sunshine phone call is I am going to find something positive to celebrate this week. That can change the trajectory truly of the whole year for you, for the student and for their family and your relationship with them. Do you have an academically talented child who's looking for a challenging and exciting summer program? Summer Institute for the Gifted provides innovative academic programs for exceptional students from all over the world. Enroll now at some of the top universities in the country, including UNC Chapel Hill, for courses like robotics, creative writing, and neuroscience. These courses are designed to engage and inspire your child, allowing them to grow into the next best version of themselves. To learn more and enroll, visit our website at giftedstudy.org. Last year, we also had the opportunity to interview Dr. Matthew Zakreski. He is a high-energy, creative clinical psychologist who is absolutely entertaining to listen to, and he attends our conferences every year and just has so much knowledge and great things to share. We actually ended up breaking up his episode into two separate episodes um, because there was just so much good stuff that we got from him. So make sure that you go back and check both of those out. I'm going to share with you a quick clip of how he describes what giftedness is. I was that way for many years of my life. But then life gets in the way and asynchronous development gets in the way and it becomes messier, right? I mean, so giftedness really is, is a piece of neuro, neurodivergence, someone who has a different brain. And if you look at the research on this, and 
a couple of years ago, I co-wrote an article with Nicole Tetro about this. There's lots of other people who do amazing brain research on this, but the gifted brain is quantitatively different, you know, and we could, we could dissemble on that at, at great length, but suffice it to say, there's a reason gifted learners have a seat at the table for neurodivergence because it is a different brain. And there are some parts of that that are superpowers. And there are some parts of that that are kryptonite. I really appreciate the way that Dr. Matt introduced the concept of giftedness as a form of neurodivergence. He emphasized that gifted individuals have brains that are quantitatively different. And I love the analogy of giftedness being both a superpower and kryptonite. Um, it adds nuance to the understanding of neurodivergence, kind of recognizing that while there are many cognitive strengths associated with giftedness, there are also a lot of challenges and vulnerabilities that go along with it as well. In addition to defining giftedness during our conversations with Dr. Matt, we talked a lot about imposter syndrome and perfectionism. One of my really big takeaways was I had asked him how perfectionism presents itself in gifted learners, and he described it in three ways, intensity, the power of ideas, and asynchronous development. So the idea of intensity is that gifted kids don't get sad, they get despondent. They don't get angry, they get furious. Everything is ramped up to that next level, and that becomes particularly relevant in the educational sphere because kids care so much more. But if that kid's a perfectionist, they're not going to want to get 100. They're going to need to get 100. Um, number two was the, the power of ideas. So one of the vital things is knowing that the gifted brain can conceptualize things that other brains cannot do. You don't just see it. There's a bowl of fruit in an art class to do a still life and you see it in the ninth dimension. You see texture and color and shade and saturation. Your brain's conceptualizing this or you're in computer science and you just don't see the next platform. You see the next great immersive video game experience. So that higher power of ideas, higher creativity, imagination, overexcitability. And then number three was the asynchronous development. Um, so you might have a kid who has the idea for the next Percy Jackson series, uh, the next greatest novel, but they don't know how to type yet or maybe even tie their shoes. So those three things really stuck out to me when he talked about how perfectionism presents itself in gifted learners. I want to share with you a little bit about, he talks about what perfectionism is, and then he tells us about healthy versus unhealthy perfectionism. So perfectionism is an inability to tolerate experiences that are different or less than your expected version of that experience. So fundamentally, perfectionism is about anxiety. If things are perfect, then I don't need to worry about them. <laughs> but if they're not perfect, then I'm going to freak out. Every person has a bandwidth of anxiety they can tolerate, right? We call this the Yerkes-Dodson law, right? When things are too easy, we disengage. When they're too hard, we freak out. Everybody's got an optimal level of anxiety people who are perfectionistic tend to have a smaller optimal range of anxiety. 
So would you say that perfectionism is a bad thing? Are there unhealthy and, and healthy versions? Yeah. So perfectionism really sort of falls into two categories, um, maladaptive perfectionism and adaptive perfectionism. The idea is that it's not a bad thing to have high standards. It's not a bad idea to want to get a hundred on a test. It's not a bad idea to want to go to an excellent school to make the soccer team be the lead in the play, whatever those things might be. But the difference between an adaptive and a maladaptive perfectionism is once again, that, that range of, of outcomes we can tolerate. You know, so if you go for the lead in the play and you get the best friend instead, that failure is going to lead to a set of responses. And ultimately, those set of responses is going to point you in a direction of adaptive versus maladaptive perfectionism because failure is unavoidable. It's out there. It's everywhere. You know, we, we try to do things, we put ourselves out in the world and they inevitably go different than we think they're going to go. So ultimately the idea here is the adaptive perfectionist, the person with high standards that are flexible says, cool, this is what I'm presented with. I'm going to make a choice to do that or not do that. And I'm going to see what I can learn from it versus the maladaptive perfectionist who says, I didn't get what I want. I'm either never going to do this again or completely obsess over it. So I'm guaranteeing myself the top spot. Being able to talk to Dr. Matt was such a cool experience and an honor. Uh, I learned, I had a lot of takeaways from it. I just really appreciate how he encourages us to have an adaptive approach to perfectionism. I think we need to have an adaptive approach with almost everything, but specifically with perfectionism, where individuals with high standards remain flexible, they can learn from setbacks and they can make informed choices based on the outcomes presented. We had a really hard time narrowing down what clips to use for this episode because we have just such a treasure trove of information with the interviews that we've done. We've interviewed all types of people from all walks of life, and we are so excited for what 2024 has in store. And there you have it. We truly appreciate your time spent with us today. If you enjoyed this episode of They'll Be Fine, please consider sharing your thoughts. Leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible would mean the world to us, but we understand if it feels like a lot. Even a quick five-star rating or sharing this episode on your own social media can make a significant impact. Your support helps us reach more families and educators who are navigating and advocating for their gifted loved ones. We hope you'll join us on our next episode as we sit down with another amazing stakeholder in the gifted community. Until then, take care.